The hate crimes bill signed into law. Pete Buttigieg's fundraising numbers. That plus 12 and 13 year olds to adult court and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending April 5th, 2019. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller. Built on a 100-plus year foundation of legal service, Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients stay ahead of a changing world. Working to develop an understanding of each client's needs to help build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Indiana Senate Republicans gave their final approval to legislation they say creates hate, hate crimes protections in state law. Governor Eric Holcomb then signed the bill, though amid constitutionality concerns, there's no guarantee it will get Indiana off the list of five states without a hate crimes statute. The legislation says judges can enact harsher penalties if crime was motivated by bias against any trait or affiliation. Republican Senator Mike Bahachik, the bill's sponsor, says that language encompasses everyone. The bill also references a list of victim characteristics, which Bahachik calls examples. We're trying to encourage our judiciary to do the right thing when they see that bias. But the list excludes sex, age, and gender identity, which has drawn the ire of many advocates. Democratic Senator Gene Bro calls the measure sexist, ageist, and transphobic. So I can't call it a hate crimes bill, and I think you're deluding yourselves if you call it a hate crimes bill. The bill passed the Senate 34 to 14, with four Republicans joining Democrats in opposition. Should Governor Holcomb be happy with how this all played out? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Elise Schrock, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly, Statehouse reporter for the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting Statehouse reporter Brandon Smith. Elise Schrock, is this a big win for the governor? No, it's not. I don't even think the governor thinks it's a big win for the governor. Um, You saw him sign this without any big ceremony. Uh, he didn't even send the press release out. It came from the speaker's office that it had been signed. Um, it's unfortunate because a lot of people, I think, seeing his leadership at the beginning of session and where he wanted this to go, some people who are normally pretty critical of the governor gave him some room to do the right thing. And at the first opportunity to fold, he did. And we have this bill, this enrolled act, now that excludes women, that excludes age, that it excludes gender identity, and that's a problem. If this is as big a deal as some have trumpeted it to be, I mean, the Indiana Republican Party sent out a very laudatory um, press release about how this is a big win for, for, in particular, Governor Holcomb. Why wasn't it celebrated? I mean, why was this a very quietly, with a batch of nine other bills, oh, we signed this thing, here you go? Well, I think it was, it was celebrated, maybe not in the way that you... That traditionally, I guess traditionally in a done? ceremony of bill signing, yeah, that, that was that that didn't happen. But um, but I mean, the governor's office, the governor has been very upfront about this since the beginning. This only happened because of his leadership, and like a lot of other issues, it kind of got eighty-five percent of the way there from the from the start. So I mean, it, the, the comment that he bailed on it at the first opportunity is not at all accurate because he stuck with it through the entire process, and it was only when, like a lot of other issues, would say, it's only when you're faced with all right, this is either going down or, or you're getting 85% of what you want. Did he, did he say, well, if that's all we can do, then, that, then that's all, all we can do. This, this, the politics of this list got completely out of control with, 
the Anti-Defamation League kind of being the keeper of this list, I think they way overplayed their hand by changing the standard a couple times throughout the process. Um, this idea that, that now they're you know putting their foot down and saying this does not get Indiana off the list. Well, then they, they need to go back and, and reanalyze right. by that because now we are, we are largely in the middle of the pack here on states that do have a, a, a biased crime bill. And, 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 and the one and if the, and if the standard is the one that was that was introduced with the, the full comprehensive list, if that, if that is their new standard, I mean, it's like in the single digits of states that actually have um, that actually have. But that, I don't think you can call books. it progress when you intentionally exclude people because of <clears throat> because you think you can only get a certain amount of people. To well, if anything, buy in. if anything, I think it pivots us back to where we were in 2016, where we were having the debate on the basis of the civil right. What does the civil rights statute in Indiana actually cover, and what classes are protected? We had that fight on gender, gender identity, and, we and those other more so controversial me, characteristics. So then, let me ask you, John. Eighty-five percent of the way there, this session, is that it though? Is this as far as we're going to go, at least for the foreseeable future? Or does this conversation now? going to happen again and again and again. Yes, to the latter. It will happen again and again and again because I don't think hate uh, or ill will is going to leave our society uh, anytime magically in the next few months or years. So as long as you have the kinds of hatred, the kinds of conduct that stems from hatred, um, this will come up again because every time we see a headline where a church has been defaced, or a synagogue has been defaced, or a trans someone person has or been trans killed. You name whatever. It, there will be the question: Oh, maybe the law should have been constructed in another manner that would have addressed this. So, uh, I think this is. Uh, I won't say the, the beginning because clearly it's it started a long time ago, but it's it's at best the middle. To that end, though, um, Mike just brought up the idea of the civil rights debate, which we had a few years ago, and then it kind of died down. There have been bills filed, certainly, sure. but it hasn't really gotten much attention. Sort of the same thing. I'm sure there will be bills filed, but how much attention will they really get as long as the Republican supermajorities remain in control? Oh, I, I think they'll be filed. They won't get a hearing. There might be a, a one-day story kind of thing. I mean, to be fair... I, and, and you've said 85% or whatever, but the fact is before the session... That was session, a number because it's state right, right. so I just made it up. Okay. Made it up uh, you know, we didn't have a sentencing law of any kind for hate crimes, and now we do, you know, if you're, if you're picking numbers, we didn't cover any categories. Now we cover seven categories. You know what I mean? There was progress, and I don't think it would have happened if Governor Holcomb wasn't behind it. But, yes, we would definitely have those bills filed to change that list Every year it happens. And if, but if they this, think this, that this is good enough, do we really expect, <clears throat> you know, next year when we come back and it's the same legislative makeup that they're going to prioritize this? No, I think they're going to say, no, they gonna say this, we, did, we got this taken care of. Absolutely. This is a progressive issue. So by going. its nature, you have to believe that society progresses in, in a way to support or, these, other, these other classes. As we, as we have in Indiana. I mean, we, the idea of defeating in 2004... A, 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 an amendment on the on the House floor to, to ban gay marriage, and that going down is was unbelievable. I mean, that's that that spanned a ten year period of growth. So I mean, it, the, with these issues, I think you do have to take a long view. You, the, the progress is incremental. And, yeah, there was a period. And, sexual orientation was the problem with this debate. And that's this year, no it was gender than, identity. Right. Definitely I mean, gender yeah. identity. It's very responsive to to the, what happens in the news to developments. And to and the hearts and say, of the people that, and generations of people that then get elected yeah. into these, you know, one heinous crime will thrust this right back into the into the 
into the, the uh, pit here for everybody to, to yeah. discuss once again. Well, time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, is the hate crimes bill signed into law a win for Indiana? A, yes, B, no, or C, too early to tell. Last week's question, what impact will the Mueller report have on President Trump's re-election chances? 22% of you say it'll be positive, 41% say it'll be a negative impact, and 37% say it won't have any impact at all. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Well, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg this week announced he raised $7 million in the first two months of his exploratory bid for president. Buttigieg's fundraising hall isn't the biggest among Democratic presidential contenders. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, California Senator Kamala Harris, and former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke all took in more money since launching their bids this year. But the Buttigieg number, $7 million in two months, 64% of that total from contributions of $200 or less, was the biggest surprise in the Democratic field. In a statement, Buttigieg said the report showed his campaign can't be ignored. And a few days later, the Indiana Democrat teased a major announcement on April 14th, widely expected to be his official declaration of candidacy for the presidency. Mike O'Brien, we've talked a lot on the show about what a Pete Buttigieg run for president would really be about, maybe a cabinet position or the vice presidency. But how seriously do we have to start taking the idea of an actual shot at the White House? He's in the top tier. I mean, the, the, we measure these things by these metrics right now, right? On money raised, number of contributors, have you hit 65,000? On the Democrat side, you, you kind of get invited to the dance if you hit 65,000 uh, donors. And he's done all that. I mean, he had 160,000 donors. It was, he was in the top tier of the, just the raw number. Um, Bernie Sanders kind of blew everybody out of the water, but he's been run for president most of his, but, you know, elderly life here. Um, and so, you know, you would expect that. Um, but I think the, if, you're, if you're Democrats, at the point you're at now, you're raising all this money for yourself and against each other. And at the end, Hillary spent almost twice as much as Donald Trump. Now, Pete Buttigieg isn't Donald Trump, right? I don't mean that as a political. I mean, the Donald Trump brand and the name idea is 100% right. coming in, right? So he didn't need, he didn't need $800 yeah. million. Dollars, but, you know, uh, President Trump last night committed that he's raising a billion dollars um, to run for re-election. He's $130 million of, um, of the way in. The DNC is in debt. The RNC is not. Um, and whoever, whatever candidate comes out of, this, out of this primary where there could be 20 people running, uh, just beating each other up for, uh, for the next you know, 14 but months of, is going to be a problem. Some of those candidates will start to drop off even after probably the first round of debates, which happens in June. And Pete Buttigieg has made it at least to those debates. How seriously do we have to start taking this? Well, I mean, and to your point about, you know, having to hit all these benchmarks and maybe being behind on fundraising now, but all of us had this conversation a couple months ago on hitting, you know, what we thought he needed to do, and he's proven that he can make up some ground real fast. Um, we said he needed name ID. At that point, we were all like, people aren't even going to be able to spell it or pronounce his name. Now everyone knows it's a thing to be able to spell it. Yeah, it's kind of a, unique, it's kind of a little yeah, strict thing. You know? yeah. It's kind of helpful. He's, it's a hook. Yeah, it's a hook. Yeah, yeah. He, and, and that's intentional. He's been able to really get his name out there, to uh, get some of his own ideas out there, which at this point in the race, it's really just about figuring out who someone is, not all of these policy ideas that he has that he's rolling out. Um, and he's 
raise some money. He's a contender. And there's already started to be, and now there's started to be some negative attention. The Catholic League unprompted sent out a, an attack on him this week. Uh, I think Rush Limbaugh devoted a segment on his show to, to Pete Buttigieg. Well, isn't when you that start more, to be a fact, yeah, isn't that the more audience, good news? Right, right well, that's yeah. more good news for Pete Buttigieg. That right? definitely shows that he's making inroads. Look, I think he's still a long shot, but the fact is he could not have played this coming out party any better. I mean, he couldn't have you know, written it down uh, that way. Obviously, I think he's starting, you know, some people are saying his his ground game, his infrastructure is a little behind, and that's probably because they weren't really expecting it to go so well in the beginning, so he's got some catching up on to, with that, but he's got the money now to put that infrastructure in place. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he should just keep doing what he's doing and see how it goes. And to be fair, if there's anybody who has experience with a coming out party, it's probably Pete Buttigieg. Oh, my God. But <laughs> I did uh, not mean that. <laughs> Anything I say is going to be a letdown after that. So I'm not, I mean, I can't talk that. Let me ask you this, though. There have been a few people who said that people to judge is the flavor of the week or the flavor of the month. Is this sustainable? Uh, Maybe not I at this level, but I think it may be because he's lots of different flavors, and that's what makes him attractive. He is somebody who comes out with government experience but not, and decision-making experience, but not out of Washington. He's a, he's a municipal An government. Outsider. He has somebody who has military experience, so he, you can check that box. That's a flavor. He does bring diversity to the table in a way that's unprecedented. Yet another uh, different flavor. So in him, you have, you know, any one of those things might be uh, a selling point for Advocates looking, uh, trying to figure out where you know they should attach their wagon. Which of these, which of these ponies is actually going to make it? And uh, when you put them all together, it makes for a pretty potent uh, package. And I think that is why I know I'm surprised how how quickly he has gained traction. I think I when we talked about it a month or two back. Uh, I made some comment about we'll we'll talk when CNN schedules its first town hall meeting uh, devoted to. Well, yeah, that didn't take didn't take. I thought I'd be waiting. And and if regardless of who what the the forum is or who the the, the pundits are talking about him, he's showing up in virtually every list of top tier. So that's that's pretty darn good coming out of the gate the way he did just a short time ago. All right. Well, Senate lawmakers this week amended a bill on the floor to add language that would allow 12 and 13-year-olds charged with attempted murder to be tried in adult court. The legislative language came out of a school shooting in Noblesville, Indiana last year. The accused in that case, a 13-year-old student, could only be tried in juvenile court because none of the victims died. 12 and 13-year-olds can be tried as adults for murder but not attempted murder, and that's what a Senate floor amendment would change. Juvenile court judges would still have discretion to keep those children in juvenile court. The legislative language says judges must weigh what's in the best interests of both the child and society. But critics argue children that young are more greatly harmed by entering into the adult criminal system. The Senate earlier this year approved a bill to make this change, but it couldn't get a hearing in the House, which led to the Senate reviving the measure via a floor amendment in its chamber. Nikki Kelly, let's talk first about process. This does happen. We saw it happen pretty notably with, well, sort of, hate crimes. Well, I mean, it happens all the time. Just because one house, you know, hears it doesn't mean, or passes it doesn't mean the next house is going to hear it. And there's always this rush at the end to try to find a home for some language. So that isn't new or different. Um, and And I've heard that the speaker isn't very happy with the process. But frankly, given how hate crimes went without even having a public hearing in the thing, I, I mean, that's a little a little rich to be mad about this process. Somebody, or, or, or Senator um, 
I think it was Senator Randy Head, who's the author of the underlying bill here, was asked on the floor about that idea of process. And they said, well, isn't that, you know, mean that the folks in the House don't like this? And he said, well, one person in the House doesn't like it, which would be the committee chair. So is that overblown a bit, of how maybe it's just one person's whims and that shouldn't stop a piece of legislation? Well, when you're opposed to the change that has occurred in a bill through an amendment, you're going to cry foul and you're going to say, why do we have these rules? And you'll protest and hold them up and say, you know, this is not germane, this is not that, it didn't meet this, clear this hurdle in the, in the proper fashion. But if you're supportive of the amendment, it's good government, it's good legislation. It's all and, perspective. And that's, and that's frankly what this comes down to. I mean, they, you have very vocal supporters of, that are pushing this. I mean, they suffered, uh, their family members of people who had suffered in uh, school shooting and they, they feel very strongly about the issue and they have people's ears and it's not surprising that that certain people in the in these chambers are responding in a manner that the, that they have it's uh... so if that's so if that's the issue with process though let's talk about the issue itself which is the idea of a 12 year old being tried in adult court for attempted murder you can always do it for, already do it for murder is that something that we as a state should be doing or are we overreacting to one incident tragic that it was that took place in Noblesville well, but if, yes, but yes, we're reacting to that specific situation because it's our local example, our most extreme local example. But unfortunately, we see this that this plays out, you know, frequently, and that is that that is a hard. It's a, it's hard to uh, for murder or attempted murder just because the just because the school shooter didn't hit anybody or didn't kill anybody. Um, does that mean that they should go to jail for five years and then be then they're then they're an adult? I mean, like as a society, what are our standards for maturity? What are our standards for like? Of crossing that threshold question that you can lock up a 13-year-old for the rest of their life. Uh, that's the struggle here, I think, and I don't think it's a dishonest one among thoughtful well, legislators. And I think you're right that we're addressing a very specific incident, but I would argue that a better way to address this incident would be in background checks so that a kid who is 12 or 13 and may not have the behavioral development that, you know, is, you know, up to speed or even tried at the same level of an adult, doesn't have access to these types of firearms. I think the same, there are parents in Noblesville that are also asking for that, and we haven't seen anything right, on yeah. that. And that's more of a shame. And, you know, the process of sticking this in at the very end when it could impact a child's life so heavily, I think there's breakdown in the process. I think we're not looking clearly at the whole issue. Um, and, and I'm troubled by this bill. Well, an amendment adopted in the Senate Education Committee this week would allow parents to sue schools if their children receive mental health services or education without permission. Religious conservative groups have sounded alarm bells for weeks about legislation this session that, among other things, provides mental health assessments, screenings, surveys, and care to Indiana students. A Senate committee amendment says parents must sign consent forms before their children are given any of those mental health services. If a student receives any sort of mental health care without that signed permission, schools would now be liable for civil penalties of up to $5,000 per student for the first infraction, up to $10,000 for the second, and more for any further infractions. That, plus parents, could sue the school for monetary damages. John Schwannis, do we want to be opening schools up to these sorts of fines and lawsuits? Uh, it seems to me uh, the phrase slippery slope comes to mind here. In fact, uh, this is more of, uh, you know, coating of petroleum jelly on, well, I would say Everest, but what's the thing in Yosemite where it's almost straight up and uh, No, not devils. Whatever the straight up and down thing is, petroleum jelly on that. Uh, that's how slippery this slope is because think about it. Uh, 
when you have children in public schools, uh, and they come from all backgrounds and all faiths and or non-faiths, and then you're ex having an expectation and that everything that that <laughs> child encounters in the classroom is going to somehow be 100% copacetic with what the parents want. I mean, it's an impractical mission. Do you every day send every lesson plan home or every study or every classroom activity? John, don't be giving them any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I just, in all from a practical though, standpoint, I mean, if I don't like something that it, the lesson may be about American history, but somehow it, it somehow during a classroom exercise morphs into something that runs afoul of my sensibilities or sensitivities, uh, I, I don't think I should be able to go and, and to that sue point, the school. The language of the amendment says that the, the permission slip that goes home has to have a detailed explanation of everything that they are uh, allowing to happen. I so, haven't delved into this issue total, you know, as deeply as I should, but I do think this is a terrible position to put our teachers in. I mean, can you imagine if a kid comes to you after school and says, you know, I'm cutting myself or I want to commit suicide. I don't care what the reason is. They're having some sort of issue. I mean, do you want a teacher to be like, I'm sorry, I got to go check for your permission slip to see if I can talk to you about this? I mean, I just think that's a really, really important well, thing. Well, it doesn't to just consider. stop at mental health, it does become a curriculum yeah. issue, I think. More yeah, there's, it's both. Yeah, I mean, well, there's, it's right. a wide range of things. And we here. know that mental health assessment prevents violent crimes as well. I mean, it goes back to the last question we had. So we're going to decrease mental health assessment or the ability for teachers to freely, you know, assess how their kids are acting. And then if they behave outside of that, um, because a parent didn't sign off on something and right into adult court. yeah, they go in there tried as an adult for attempted murder. I mean, I know that's a stretch, but I think it just shows how, um, how difficult we're making it on teachers from a legislative standpoint, not to mention we're not paying them enough for all of this. And the way to do that would be to cut corporate taxes. I, Anne wasn't here, so I just happened to get that in the show this week. Wow. No, um, <laughs> is, this, is this the sort of thing? There have been legitimate concerns raised about how do we hold schools accountable for parents want some control over certain things that their children are taught, whether it's agreeing to them or not agreeing to them. And if the schools don't follow that, what is the mechanism for holding them accountable? But is this just a little too far in that direction? Well, yeah, and, and, uh, yes, I think. And there's no clear line when you've crossed into counseling yeah. for me. And, and, what it, and a lot of times what we miss in a lot of these debates, we have reasonable parents and reasonable people thinking, who think about have a very good home life, good well-structured home life, what about at-risk kids who are being sexually Not abused or, or, or abused? Yeah. Or what this issue is really about, if you follow Eric Miller around the building, uh, or Michael Clark, the issue is really about a kid that may say, I think I'm gay and I can't talk to my parents about it. I need to talk to somebody else about it. Now, I, th I think it's completely reasonable for, and, and should be expected for parents to be engaged in that uh, not that just that conversation, but engaged in their child's education, what's happening in that building every day. And, and I understand why legislators would think. But they're not the all parents need to, need to know what you're saying to my kid yeah. and what, what my kid's doing. But there are times when the kid's at risk, and it's because of the parents. Yeah. So what do we do in that situation? It's, it's hard to know where to draw that line. House lawmakers this week approved a bill on civics education that pulls back from an earlier proposal that would have imposed a new graduation requirement. Republican Senator Dennis Cruz's original bill would have required Indiana high school students to pass the U.S. citizenship test before they can graduate. Current education requirements already mandate civics classes, but Cruz says students aren't really learning the material. 
But the House pulled back from that proposal. Instead, students will now have to take that civics exam as part of their already mandated government classes. The House also added a requirement for greater study of the Holocaust in high schools. Elise Schrock, we talked earlier this year about the initial proposal of making passage of the civics test a graduation requirement. Did lawmakers here get to maybe a better solution? I I was a little bit afraid about the graduation requirement portion. We already put a lot of requirements and testing on our kids. Um, another one, granted, civics is a great thing to know. Um, another one kind of had me troubled. Um, I think they're already doing this anyway, so that's what this bill does. I would uh, pitch that we do, if, you know, if we're going to add the Holocaust, um, more education about the Holocaust, which is very important. I would also make my pitch and the pitch that State Senator Greg Taylor, State Senator Jean Bro have always made that we have more intentional black history uh, uh, knowledge and women's history included in that civics knowledge. Is this, a, is this an example of the process getting to maybe the best outcome? I was for the citizenship test, and I, and I don't think it's unreasonable to make that a requirement to graduate. I mean, it's the fundamental thing you are, as a citizen of the United States, in this education that's just been provided to you by the United States, it's, a fu it's fundamental to what you're about to go do, which is leave your schooling and go participate but, in society. But when the permission slip goes home to see if parents are, <laughs> can parents choose the Second Amendment? Yes, I want, but I don't want the mouth first. Off about I mean, can you pick and know anything about, you know, they they pass know it more. there are more. They have a better rate of passing. Yeah, if you're a naturalized but citizan, then you know teachers, a heck of a lot more than your average American about our, our political process. I think if process. most teachers, they would say, we can get there. We don't have to make it a required yeah. test. We can get there. All right, well, that's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Elise Schrock, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity and on the WFYI app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations and by Ice Miller, built on a 100-plus year foundation of legal service. Ice Miller is a full-service law firm committed to helping clients stay ahead of a changing world, working to develop an understanding of each client's needs to help build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations.